Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, MPPs are back to work from a long winter break, a list of things that need to be doing. Andrea Perella from Loria University will join us to break down what has to be done. We're not the only city that's putting in a bid for the Commonwealth Games. Is it worth it for Hamilton to pursue this? And Council will also hear a presentation this week about what LRT could look like in this city or alternative forms of transit as well. Still a hot-button issue. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Back to work for the Ontario Legislature. They uh, resumed today at Queen's Park after a 10-week winter break. And uh, boy, they got a lot on the agenda. And a lot of angry people in the province right now that are looking for some action on some of these things. Joining us to talk about uh, what may be happening in the next couple of days down there at Queen's Park is Andrea Perella, an associate professor and director at the Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. My pleasure. Let me right off the top. Uh, it's, it's 10 weeks off. Uh, this, this, of course, is not too far after the 16-week uh, break that they took over the summer. Uh, I, this may be saving hydro at Queen's Park by not turning the lights on, but uh, an awful lot of people are getting very upset that this is, uh, you know, you're not governing if you're not there. That's the way a lot of people feel. There's a public perception there that a lot of these things seem to snowball because the, the government was not on the job at the time. How, do you, uh, how does a government like this overcome that feeling? It's not so easy because that's the only perception people have of government is when they're in Parliament, when they're debating, but that's only a small percentage of their work. Um, that's true of all, of all professions. The, what the public sees is only the tip of the iceberg. A lot of work goes on in committees. A lot of work goes on at the constituency level. Um, I have to say, I feel sorry for elected officials because they're on the job all the time. Their weekends are, are sacrificed. They're always traveling from one end of the province to the other or from one end of the constituency to the other. Um, so there's a lot of work going on. Whether there's actual government work, uh, that we don't know, uh, but I, I imagine they're busy on a, on a bunch of portfolios as well. So I, I'm pretty convinced that they're not, they're not on vacation, but uh, the, the perception is that they're not working. Well, there's another element to this, too, and I guess the word that pops into my head as I, we talk about this uh, is, is accountability. Uh, you know, when stuff like this happens, uh, well, obviously the teacher's conflict, which I'm sure we're going to get to in just a second here, uh, you know, stories about uh, the hallway health care is getting worse, not better. Y- you want somebody to be accountable in a question period, whether it's going to be the opposition parties or, or the media, somebody like that. And, of course, when they're not there, uh, they're pretty hard to pin down sometimes. Well, for sure. Uh, whenever there are events that happen, and in, in politics, as any, anybody who's been there long enough will tell you, that events occupy a large percentage of the energy. Random events, things that you didn't plan for, and such as uh, the coronavirus or, 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 the, or other things, including uh, the, the, the bubbling uh, the labor disputes. Uh, these things happen uh, whether you want them to or not. They may not be part of your agenda. Someone has to be out there front and center on a podium talking about it, talking to the press, uh, and if you're not there, th- then again, the perception is, you, well, you're not doing anything, even though there may be a lot of, a lot of work behind the scenes, but, but the public, uh, as far as the public is concerned, they cannot comment or they cannot adjudicate on what they cannot see. So then the, the default opinion is, well, you're doing nothing. Well, let's talk about what's going to be happening today. Uh, job one, I would think, has to be the, the teacher situation. Do you agree? Oh, if it's not job one, it's definitely job one or two. Um, <laughs> it's... Um, uh, uh, definitely a high priority. 
And and how would they address something like this? I mean, this is spun out of control. I, I can't remember in recent history anyway a situation where all of the teachers' unions, all of the boards of education right across the province seemingly, and, and a number of parent groups uh, all seem to be supportive of the teachers' position on this. Uh, uh, invariably, you'll see, a, you know, it's divide and conquer. You'll see somebody split off the other side of parents being angry because the teachers aren't there. This is a different scenario than we're used to seeing when, when these sorts of labor conflicts happen. I think the government's vision for public education uh, is one that threatens pretty much all education boards, all all teacher boards, and all the, all the unions. So they're all unified on that, um, and and so this matter it may seem to be, have been mishandled. But maybe the government is playing a long game. They figure let this run on, you know, let these one day, two day, three day strikes carry on until parents get fed up. Uh, and then they'll have public opinion on their side. But right now they're losing that war. Right now public opinion is not on the side of the government. It's actually more sympathetic to the teachers. You used a phrase there that I've heard from a number of the, uh, the union representatives, and we've had them all on the program, obviously, over the last couple of weeks, is this thing seems to have festered. Uh, and that's the attack on public education. That's the way they're characterizing this right now. And you've heard some of the, the comments about, you know, we've got an education minister that went to private school. His his parliamentary assistant was homeschooled. What do these guys know about public education anyway? No, I have to say, and this is for the benefit of the public, uh, you don't have to be, um, you know, a, a pilot or a truck driver to be minister of transportation. You don't have <laughs> to be a nurse or a doctor to be minister of health. To, to occupy a, a position of leadership, what you have to be able to do is listen, weigh, consider the consequences, and, and that, you can be anybody to do that. So you don't have to have come from the public education system to be a leader of public education. Now, having said that, um, what the vision they have for public education is something that a lot of teachers and a lot of parents are worried about, uh, such as the mandated e-learning um, or the obligatory e-learning. And, and there are you know, lots of research that shows that children at, at those young ages, uh, even in high school ages, have not yet developed that part of the brain that makes the possible or feasible for them to, to easily learn on their own uh, online. Um, you know, but these arguments are, are being uh, swept aside for this vision that, hey, we can save a whack of money if only students log in and complete their high school diploma online. Uh, they're online anyway, uh, so there is a, this, this um, um, the clash of visions, this clash of, of pedagogical paradigms, um, and, uh, which I think is, is, is leading to this in, in, endured conflict. And and it's it's not in in the abstract right now because I mean since they've instituted or even announced some of these reforms uh, that they've tried to bring in, uh, we've seen the implications of those. I mean, parents, you know, it was starting last September, of course, when the kids went back to school, they saw larger class sizes, just as was predicted. Uh, they noticed that some students were not able to access certain programs that they might need for post secondary education. Yeah, we're hearing more and more stories about uh, students who can't uh, cannot find um, a calculus course, even an online calculus course, which. Uh seems to have capped out its enrollment, and they need the, these math courses or some other courses to qualify to apply for some university program. So it's not like as if you know, students can't find some fun course that they would like to take. They, they, they cannot find a required course that they need to take in order to, to apply for whatever university uh, discipline they want to pursue. So we're seeing real, real consequences, and not just, uh, um, you know, the, the uh, cosmetic um, changes. We're actually seeing real consequences. Well, and it's impacted just about every level of education, hasn't it, Professor? I mean, elementary school, obviously secondary schools, but even up in post-secondary schools, too, with uh, tuition changes, yes. uh, funding for certain programs. I mean, universities are going to be hard-pressed. Just about everybody's going to be impacted. Oh, I, I don't think there's going to be uh, any sector in the, in the education uh, portfolio writ large is going to be spared. I, I think um, I think we're all going to we're all going to be seeing some some sort of um, 
uh, change, the reform. Um, you know, some of some of it could be for the better, um, but a, a lot of it may be driven simply uh, with a dollar sign in somebody's eye more that, than than what is the benefit of, of the student, what, how it benefits students. So I, I think there is going to be again m- more conflicts in the future. How do we change the, the, the tone of this conversation, maybe even the direction of it? Uh, because I, I've always maintained, look, at the day of the government, they were elected, in, in, you know, and majority governments can put their own agendas out there. We, we knew that. But at the same time, it seems to me what I'm looking for as a ha- taxpayer here is an explanation. Why is this what you're putting forth here? Why is this better for our students? Is, I know it's going to be cheaper. You know, we're going to lose a lot of teaching jobs. So, okay, the bottom line is going to be impacted. But is it making for a better system? I don't think they've answered that yet. No, and I don't think they like the answer because uh, the answers may not be that it's better for students. It's better for the bottom line, but not necessarily better for students. Um, and, and that kind of thinking, again, will, will do nothing more than, than just create more conflict because there are those who say, well, this is not the way to go. Uh, we have a great education system. Why wreck it? Uh, why try something that, that we know or, or, or really, really believe is just going to cause a lot of problems for students down the line or, or, or students immediately? And as you said, already students are, are facing uh, some challenges. They're, they're seeing uh, the, the, the results of all these cutbacks and these, and these reforms. Um, so it's a very difficult argument to win. I understand political philosophies, too, and, and we, we knew all that the stuff was coming in. We saw the platform such as it was after uh, Premier Ford was elected here. But I, I think what we're asking for and what you've just touched on here is, is having a more robust discussion and maybe a more inclusive discussion about why this is, is wrong and, okay, here's how we're going to fix it. i, I got to tell you, I, I, we've put a number of kids in our family through school, and uh, they've finished post-secondary, and God bless them, they're doing fine now, all of them. But I don't think we had a broken system here. Yet that seems to be the message we're getting from the government. Well, yes. Uh, what we have is an expensive system. The, the, the two most expensive um, um, departments, if you want to call that, in, in the provincial um, government is uh, education and health. So if you're going to get a handle on any type of budgetary restraint, those are the two areas you're going to attack. Um, education is expensive. Health is expensive. You know, we need education because an educated uh, you know, uh, workforce is, is a productive workforce. Uh, we need a healthy workforce. We need a healthy population. So these are, are not just nice to have. These are, are essential, but they're expensive. Uh, and if you're going to, number one, uh, save money, that's the way to go. But also, if you want to find ways to make money, like if there is like a, a, a private sector opportunities in there, well, that's something else that I think some people want to explore. Is there a way for businesses to make money on education? Now, education is, is a big business. There's lots and lots of companies that make millions on educational software, educational programs. Maybe they are itching to get into the game. The same thing with healthcare. We know about you know, two-tiered healthcare and private uh, 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 healthcare in the sense of, of private providers. Uh, and and you, uh, just like the, uh, when you go get like a blood test, it may be a private lab. Uh, you pay with your medical card, but it's a private company. So there's a lot of, when the sector is that big, there's a lot of business that wants to, to take a piece of that action. And maybe that's some of the pressure that the government is feeling. Because after all, Doug Ford said he's, he's all for business. Uh, his, his main vision is to make Ontario friendly for business. So in two sectors, such as education and health, he may see opportunities to, to, to do good on that vision of his, of, of, of bringing in more business in the public sector. But to your point earlier in the discussion here about playing the long game, why aren't they playing the long game there? Do they, does he not understand that if he wants businesses to succeed, that workforce needs to be healthy and well-educated? Um, yes, but, but, but um, you're looking at long-term, short-term. 
Um, and in the long term, yes, of course, uh, an educated workforce. And an educated, um, they don't have to necessarily be skilled. And, uh, by educated, it doesn't mean that they necessarily have to have a, a concrete marketable skills. But being educated means you're able to think for yourself. It means you're able to, to think independently, um, which means you probably make some pretty good life choices and not end up relying on on some type of social assistance later down the line so so educated is is more to is, is more than just skill um and the education system we have does a fairly good job in in, in teaching kids about life apart from the math and reading and, and all the skills that they, that they need in order to work but it also teaches them about life and that is a big factor that is often overlooked uh, about the resiliency that we need in order to to in, uh, endure the challenges of life and not fall victim to all sorts of other potential pitfalls that end end up becoming a cost to the public purse. But you are you going to learn those sorts of life lessons uh, from a, an online course, or do you really no. need that that personal contact? No, and and we've all taken online courses. You take an online course when you want to acquire a certification or a skill. Um, life lessons are learned from mentors. They're learned from teachers. They're learned from from being with other kids. They're learned from from um, being exposed to experiences, and also they they come from finding out ways in which a mentor or teacher can reach a particular student. So you have to know your students. That's why they hang around you for about a year. You have to know your student to know how best they can learn and how best they can perceive what motivates them. It's a bit like parenting, you know. You can't parent online, so you can't teach online. Um, it, it, you're raising people so that they can think for themselves and 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 stand on their own two feet. So it's it's, not, it's more than just you know plumbing skills and and and, uh, and drafting skills and whatever. It, it's more about um, um, thinking and 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 surviving. And a lot of that is what we may call soft skills. But a really important employer says, you know, we hire on on hard skills, but we fire on soft skills. Um, so you have a wonderful resume with all these skills, great, come work for us. But then if you see that you can't handle stress, you're incapable of making decisions, you, you, you doubt yourself, well, then you're useless to me. Um, so what type of person do we want to, to be the characteristic uh, graduate of Ontario education system? A person who has skills or someone who's able to handle whatever life throws at them? I know from my personal experience, having gone through the system many, many years ago, of course, and just about anybody I've talked to uh, about this or anything else, can specifically point to one or two teachers along the way to say that was the influence that changed my life or that inspired me or whatever the case may be. Not all of them necessarily, but one or two that were pivotal in that development. Uh, and, and I don't know if that opportunity is going to be there for the students of today and for tomorrow, if we're going to continue down this road of saying, well, less is better when it comes to teaching. Well, if we treat education like a production line, and how do we trim the cost? And that exactly, we're going to be seeing less and less of these stories about someone having an inspirational teacher who who saw in a student value when everybody else saw just you know like a bad kid, uh, and and that teacher helped change the students so that they became um, um, a good student and and they were able to be successful and and they went off to do wonderful things. Um, we're going to be hearing a lot less of that because, like you said, you know that kind of experience does not come through very well on a computer screen. Well, hopefully they can get over this us-versus-them attitude that seems to be prevalent in these negotiations and get this thing solved for everybody's benefit. Now, Professor, as always, thanks so much for your input today. Great talking with you. My pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor Andrea Perella, of course, from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A uh, number of issues uh, on the local level that we're going to deal with on the program over the next couple of days, uh, none the least of which is uh, the uh, bid, such as it is for the Commonwealth Games. This, of course, the 2030 Commonwealth Games, which would be the 100th anniversary. 
And I think we all know the history that the original Commonwealth Games back in those days called the British Empire Games was right here in Hamilton. And, well, that stadium that we called Ivor Wynn Stadium was actually constructed for that. The Jimmy Thompson Pool was constructed for that, and that's still standing, of course. And uh, if, in fact, this comes to fruition, uh, the 100th anniversary games would be on the very same site where the first one was. From a, a, a traditional standpoint, that sounds wonderful, but let's talk about money and finances and competition because uh, it's a long, hard road to, to get from where we are now to where they want to be for the 2030 games. Uh, one of the folks that's uh, working hard to make that happen is Greg Maycheck from the Hamilton 100 Group, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on what's happening. Greg, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us here. No problem, Bill. Always good speaking with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, because you know there's been some pushback uh, from some people in the community right now that's saying, look, with all the challenges that this city has uh, from a, an infrastructure standpoint and a number of other areas, uh, we shouldn't be bothering with this. What, what, how, do, how does your group explain the, the drive to do this and, and the importance of it? Well, certainly we lack some important infrastructure, uh, much of which is both sport but also some other facilities that could be offset or a major contribution from not only the other levels of government, uh, but also the private sector. Uh, from a municipal standpoint, Bill, there's a huge return on the investment here. Uh, so see, we see it as a great opportunity for the city uh, rather than a cost. Now, give me your personal perspective on this, Greg, because uh, it recently retired, of course, from the city of Hamilton, but uh, you, you're, you're working hard on this committee uh, on a volunteer basis. But when you were working for the city, and, and let's face it, there were a couple of other opportunities in the past uh, where the city expressed some great interest, actually just missed out on uh, one set of Commonwealth Games a number of years ago. But you visited some of the cities where these games have taken place. Tell us what you see and tell us about the, the legacy impact that these games can have. Well, I had the privilege, as you said, Bill, to work on the uh, 2010 bid, and we attended the games in Manchester. And I saw a transformation in a number of parts of the city. I saw what it did for that community, but I also saw the kind of civic pride. Uh, I, I spoke to a number of people that said prior to the games, uh, they saw themselves as kind of like the little brother to London. Uh, they compared themselves in this way. When people ask, where do you live? We lived a few hours away from London and Birmingham. But after the games, they were proud to say, we're, we're from Manchester. Um, so it brought a lot of civic pride. It took one part, East Manchester, and basically transformed that part of the city. And, and I don't think it's any coincidence that the soccer team there, uh, which at that time was a lower-tier team, uh, then became one of the top teams in the Premier League. Uh, Manchester City. So um, the game certainly transformed that city. Uh, this past summer, we did go to Birmingham and we had the opportunity to meet with their city officials and the people behind the bid. And what we saw there too was a transformation. Uh, we're seeing construction for new facilities. Uh, we're seeing uh, affordable housing being built to accommodate the athletes' village. So we've seen the work, and the investment now in Birmingham that will make for great games in 2022. So you're right, Bill. I've had the pleasure of visiting one city that was in the midst of hosting the games and one city that is now in the planning construction mode. And, and what we saw was uh, a transformation, not only a change of facilities and venues, but a change in attitude, one of positivity 
and moving forward as a major international city. Because I think in past games, whether it's Commonwealth Games or certainly for the Olympics as well, uh, uh, we've seen evidence uh, on the other side of that uh, that ledger sheet, you know, Greg, where uh, facilities that were constructed at great cost, obviously, to the taxpayers uh, for some of those games, uh, set vacant not too long after the games because they can't find an effective reuse for them. Uh, that seems to be a problem that the, the Commonwealth Committee seems to have overcome. Uh, no question, Bill, but I'll tell you a big part of it, too, is the planning in advance, people that have the experience and the knowledge. And unfortunately, after the 76 Olympics, the Canadian government, Sport Canada, got involved. And what we saw in 2010 and what we saw in 2015 was legacies that were well-planned. When the CGF came here in the summer, they preached to us, don't think about the games as much as you think about legacy. Define what your city most needs, and that's what you need to build. It's less about the games it's more about community building. And what we've done too, Bill, and I'll give a lot of credit to city staff, we've had several meetings now trying to align our budget, capital budget, to that of the city. And the word that's been used by some staff is cost avoidance. So the opportunity is an example to build a recreation sports center, say in the water down area. Currently they don't have one. There's a YMCA, there's no recreation facility. The opportunity to build something better and leverage money from the games will create an incredible facility in that community that otherwise they couldn't afford. So it helps to accelerate those projects, it helps to fund those projects, and it helps to build those types of facilities that are badly needed that the city would want to build anyways, and it is part of their 10-year capital plan, but by using the games as the catalyst, it can get done sooner and at a lesser cost to the local taxpayer. Well, and this, I understand people are going to say, look, there's only one taxpayer. But actually, no, there's millions of taxpayers. Uh, uh, and I, I understand the impact this can have. But when you're having something of this nature uh, and you spread the cost out, in other words, the Ontario and, and, and the federal government in Ottawa uh, start cost sharing in this. Well, we saw what happened with the stadium, of course, for the Pan Am Games. I mean, notwithstanding the debate that went on about location, location, et cetera, we ended up getting a, sta- a, a pretty good football stadium and soccer stadium here for pennies on the dollar, really. No question, Bill, but I'm going to explain something, and you had Lou Proporti on your show, something very distinct and different from these games. And I do agree with you, there is only one taxpayer. But what we're doing here and what uh, Lou has explained and what he's been doing over the last three, four months is building coalitions with other regions, of course, all levels of government, educational institutions, private companies, and people all working together. And you heard Lou also speak about the social impact. So we tend to focus on the infrastructure, which is tangible and something we see. But we see it as an opportunity to build upon the UN sustainability goals focused on 2030, excuse me, and using these games as a catalyst to work with a number of organizations to work towards these goals. And we think this is first and foremost I would say Lou and his big picture thinking, his connections, his involvement, not just in this region, but beyond and throughout the Commonwealth will be a game changer in terms of these games being the first games ever that really have a social impact that is significant and different from other games. 
the, 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 I got to tell you, I, I, you've talked about a couple of the individuals here, and I think this is one of the things that I, I think has convinced council, at least to this date anyway, uh, that there's some merit to this. There's a, there's a lot of heavy hitters behind this. We've been blessed, some of it I think good fortune, of individuals like Lou coming forward to reach out to PJ to say, how can I help? Um, how can my firm help? And the amount of time and effort, some incredible professional people that, again, are volunteering their time to make this happen is just incredible, Bill. I've never worked with such a dedicated uh, team of individuals who are passionate but also very realistic and realize that in this day and age, no few people can do this. It's about community engagement. It's about outreach. It's about building these coalitions. And it's about working together and sharing our resources to make this happen. As you know, Bill, this bid has been not only um, the contribution of volunteers, uh, but it's been self-funded without government support. And, and that's unheard of for major bids. So already we've demonstrated an example of people willing to put forward not only their own time and effort, but their own, own money to make this happen. But at some point, there's going to have to be a discussion with dollars and cents. Where are we in that discussion right now, Greg? We're at that point, Bill. Uh, the meeting that will take place tomorrow at City Council, we're asking um, GIC and the subcommittee of City Council to give us permission to submit Part 2 of the bid, which is the final submission for the domestic bid phase. But we're also asking the city for a letter in writing that the city will sit down city staff, elected uh, members of council, to discuss and negotiate what they call the tri-party agreement. What will be the amount of funding that the city is willing to contribute, but also negotiate to ensure that the city and the local taxpayer are getting the best possible deal. And at the same time, that the amount that the city is going to contribute is reasonable, makes sense, and does not put uh, a, a large burden or a burden on the local taxpayer. Do you have a number in mind? We're talking about a budget, what PJ will present tomorrow, somewhere around $1.4, $1.5 billion for the entire games, uh, with the city contribution probably sitting about $150 million. Again, until we get down to the nitty-gritty and the details and we do a full cost analysis, now, that's not to say the city might agree to that amount. They could agree to an amount more or less, pending what is the other levels of funding and what the private sector is willing to bring forward. But all that will be negotiated and discussed as a three-level agreement, along with what hopefully at that point is our host society, to determine what makes sense, what makes sense for Hamilton, the City of Hamilton, Council, staff, and is it good bang for the box? Our hope is that the amount that the city contributes is not any more than what they would be paying out to build some badly needed facilities in our community. But our hope is we go far beyond that to not only build better, but build more. And again, Bill, I can't emphasize enough the social impact and the outreach, not just regionally, but globally, uh, being that there are 71 nations of the Commonwealth and the opportunity to really showcase this city on an international basis, that we could be the model city and that we could have a significant impact around the world to address the UN sustainability goals, 
but also to build some badly needed infrastructure that otherwise we could never afford. Greg, has the committee mapped this out yet? You, you just mentioned, for instance, about a possibility of a, a rec center in the Waterdown area. Uh, as an example of this, uh, there's a, a concern, I guess, among some people in the community that, well, these things are usually downtown-centric and not too many other parts of the city really benefit from that. Uh, are you going to spread out the joy, I guess, is maybe the, the question we're asking here? I'm more than happy, Bill. I'll share really quickly. You've had a lot of discussion on your show about the Arena and Convention Centre. Of course, we see that as being downtown. Multi-sport centres, uh, one out in Waterdown, one out in Glanbrook, an indoor-outdoor beach volleyball facility down at Confederation Park, uh, a new aquatic centre out in the Westdale area, of course, at McMaster University. That pool was built in 1963. By 2030, it's long overdue we need a major aquatic facility in our community to support not only elite sport but also for the community itself Um, a cricket field house which would service the new cricket pitch at confederation park but would enable everything from meetings to proper social space to accommodating all the amenities needed for the games including equipment it could service not only cricket but also pickleball we're also looking at new and expanded lawn bowls facilities that would service not only Gage Park or Rose Lawn uh, Lawn Bowling, but also the tennis club there. Both their buildings are very old, in particular the lawn bowl facilities. We're looking at new sport pitches to accommodate field hockey. But what's really exciting is they're looking at new turf that is multi-sport. So as we see the need for more soccer pitches in our community, and we've seen for example, some indoor facilities closing, maybe we can convert a couple of the sport pitches up at Mohawk Sports Complex to accommodate a wide array of sports, including whether it be soccer or rugby or football. Um, We're also looking, and this one is the one that really excites me, Bill. You know I'm passionate about the proud history of the games, and you you opened your, your discussion on this with the 1930 games. Our hope is to rebuild a retro stadium that's a replica of the 1930 games that was built down at the old Iberwind site and rebuild that same venue, but of course the modern standards up at Mohawk Sports Complex. So as you can see from just this list of eight, um, it's all across the city from one end to the other, both east, west, north, south, and it's really a sharing of venues that would benefit the entire city and certainly not just one portion. So I just want to be clear on this, and this sounds very exciting, and uh, as Steve Milton wrote about in the spec the other day, uh, this is a one-shot thing. I mean, if, we, if the answer is no and they don't get it this time, I don't see this happening. This is an opportunity to get federal and provincial money involved in this and private sector money. So there's, the time seems to be right, but when you go to council this week, uh, Greg, when your committee goes to council, are you looking for a, a hard and fast commitment for dollars from that council this week? No. no. Just the fact that the city and city staff will sit down and negotiate and discuss. Now, at the city level, maybe, you know, at Mike Segarek's level, he has a number in mind that he thinks the city could afford. I'm not sure what that may be at this point in time. But, no, it's completely negotiable. It's a long process in terms of the tri-party agreement. I think this one will take a lot less time. But if we compare it, for example, to the Vancouver Olympics, that was an 18-month discussion. And the city is not bound until which time there's full agreement of all three levels 
And then that's when staff would bring back a report to city council saying, here's your last opportunity as an off-ramp or to agree. But if you agree to this, this is what the local cost would be, but here's the benefit. Here's the amount of dollars that will be leveraged both from public and private. Um, or if we choose not to, this is what we potentially could lose in terms of infrastructure and funding that, yes, as Steve Milton has said, this chance will never come again. All right, but just, uh, you worked for the city for a long time, Greg, so you know what I'm going to say here. Uh, city Council here in Hamilton has mastered the art of obfuscation oftentimes and, and kick things down the road. If you don't get a hard and fast commitment from them, not a, not a check, but a commitment from them this week, does that, does that throw you back? If they do not provide a letter of support indicating they'll participate in the process, that would kill the project. And we need the same uh, commitment from the provincial government and we will be re reaching out to the province if we get a, an affirmative vote uh, from council this week. And we'll be meeting with them as well. And we'll need that level of support. Call it a soft level or a comfort letter. will be required before the March 9th deadline. That is required along with part two of the submission. So we need the commitment from both levels of government. And we also need to submit our part two of our bid, which I'm glad to say we have completed it and we've provided staff with a copy. And invariably, I, I know we're just about out of time here, uh, if you are the successful Canadian bidder for this, uh, the, the federal government usually kicks in. I mean, they have for every other international game, so you would But anybody that, that, that opts out of this pretty much kills the deal then. That's correct, Bill. And I will say about the federal government, as you know, they had made a commitment, a firm commitment of close to $2 billion for for the Calgary Olympic bid that went to a public site and then subsequently lost. Um, the federal government, we had as many as five staff on a recent conference call uh, just to discuss next steps. So Sport Canada has a history here of supporting Olympics, Pan American Games like we saw in Toronto, but of course Commonwealth Games. And as you know, Bill, the Commonwealth Games have not been here in Canada since 1994. This is the 100th. It will be in 2030. That's a 36-year period that these games have not taken place in this country. And prior to 1994, we were pretty well in a cycle of hosting at least every fourth games. And we have hosted the games four times, including 1930. So Canada is long overdue to host the games. And I would anticipate that our opportunity, if we get city and provincial support, that our chances of winning this bid internationally, in my opinion, is excellent. I think our, our opportunity here is outstanding. And if we can advance and get the support of both the province and the city, I truly believe in my heart and soul that Hamilton will be announced as the host city of the Centennial Commonwealth Games. And I can't think of a better place to have it than to bring it home to Hamilton the host of the very first games. Greg Maycheck from Hamilton 100. Greg, you paint a great picture here, and I, I appreciate and applaud your uh, uh, your enthusiasm for this in the committee, too. But let's uh, see how council responds to this. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for this today. All the best, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to get a hold of uh, Councillor Maureen Wilson, Ward 1. Uh, to talk about light rail transit and public transit uh, here in the community. Uh, let's let's <laughs> talk a little bit about one of the presentations, as we mentioned, is going to be uh, to use this billion dollars for a fleet of electric buses. And, and you've got some concerns about that. I do. And, and my concerns are based on, in fact and in evidence. Um, it, electric buses are not a substitute 
for LRT. Um, Because they don't do three key things. The first thing is they will not solve our capacity issue today and certainly in the future when our population is set to grow by about 30%. Secondly, they're not going to be able to address the real financial crisis that is facing us. Um, and there is nothing like the permanency of rail to spur development and enrich our tax base. And thirdly, um, their electric buses actually don't address our climate goals. So with that in mind, uh, it, it, it is... is is this going to be a lively debate? I mean, I, I get the sense sometimes, Maureen, I think I mentioned this when you went in the uh, studio last week with us, uh, with Councillor Danko and Councillor Nan, uh, that we're back to square one here as far as council's concerned. They don't know where to go. They don't know where to put their initiatives or their support for any of these projects. I, I, well, you okay. seem to be pretty clear where you stand, though. Well, I mean, this council was clear. The previous council voted in um, exceeding, I think, 40 times in support of of LRT. Um, LRT meets a number of corporate and community objectives, um, and I ran uh, clearly on an LRT platform because, A, um, we, those three things I've just mentioned, we need it to address our capacity. Uh, right now, uh, the B line, which runs from University Plaza in the very west end all the way to the Eastgate Mall, is the busiest transit route in Hamilton. 9 million trips a year, more than 40% of Hamilton's total public transit ridership. Um, And our population is set to grow by 30% over the next 30 to 40 years. That beeline, we don't have any more room for cars. Uh, And a bus, whether it's electric or um, other fuel, it's still a bus. Um, And it will be stuck in behind those cars. So um, LRT, as you know, runs on rails in a dedicated dedicated lane. And as that ridership continues to grow, all we have to do is add another rail car and couple it to the first train without the expense of an additional operators, and they don't have to compete um, with cars. And, and that's what makes them efficient. Maureen, um, and, go ahead. No, go, uh, finish off. I'm sorry. And electric buses, in fact, um, we would have to buy twice as many electric buses to serve our existing transit demand. Because electric uh, buses with batteries, um, they're about one and a half times the price right now of other propulsion vehicles. And um, our, our fleet, our, our routes are of such a length that we would, we would need twice as many buses. And if we wanted to have buses with smaller batteries, we would have to install um, electric infrastructure to allow for charging along our routes. And again, that impacts our routes. All of these things, I'm not against electric buses, um, but clearly it needs to be stated they're not a substitute for LRT. All right, and, and you've been adamant about this and consistent about this, as a number of other people on council have been as well. Uh, but are those voices going to be heard? I mean, I just got a press release, uh, I picked it up on my mailbox uh, when I got into work today, uh, from uh, a group called Hamilton Light Rail, an independent grassroots organization with over 5,000 supporters, they say, citywide, urging uh, this transportation tax force to make LRT their top recommendation. I know you'd like to see that as well, 
But is that message going to resonate with this committee? I mean, uh, uh, when we talked to the chair, Tony Valeri, about this the other day, obviously they're trying to be objective about this. Uh, we're not sure just how this system is going to roll out and, and how it's going to be received and even what recommendations they're going to make. Do you do you feel confident that LRT is going to get a, a, a at least a, a, a decent discussion within this committee to, to put it back on top of this list? I, I have to, because when I look at all the facts, and the factors, it continues to bring you back to LRT. And great cities are built for tomorrow. (laughs) And there's no other uh, vehicle, excuse the word, but that will meet our uh, climate objectives, that will meet our capacity objectives, and will meet our financial objectives. So if we don't get LRT now, um, we will. It's an idea whose time has come. We will be getting it. Uh, regrettably, if we don't get it now, we'll get it to the next generation where, where the cost of it will be um, much more significant and we'll have lost a generation in terms of city building and being a competitive city. We'll have lost out to the likes of Kitchener-Waterloo, to Mississauga, to Ottawa. Uh, make no uh, bones about it. Cities have to compete. They have to compete for young, um, mobile talent they have to compete for investment. And young, mobile, educated talent are looking to live in an urban environment um, and they want high-order transit. And it's interesting that the um, delegation tomorrow is referencing uh, research done by Professor Sachs out of the University of Toronto. And I contacted Professor Sachs um, and she... uh, (laughs) She was very clear that the conclusion they reached with her research was not her conclusion. So they're citing um, a study that she did in Toronto, and they're saying that we have to account for the greenhouse gases that are embodied in light rail transit. So when you construct something, of course, you're going to emit greenhouse gases. What uh, Dr. Sachs is saying that there is a significant difference in the kind of uh, rail and the amount of greenhouse gases that emit. So light rail transit, of all the rail, um, it is the one that emits the, the least amount of greenhouse gases. So they're mixing apples and oranges because they, she looks at the Shepherd Subway, which is five, about five kilometers in length. It's all underground. Um, and if you're going to be tunneling, you're going to emit greater greenhouse gases. And these are all talking points that we've heard, of course, before, which I hope swayed some of the people to favor this project. Uh, then comes the announcement. But I, I want to get back to the task force, Maureen, because I know that, again, to, with the roundtable discussion we had here in studio last week about this, all three of you expressed some concern about the the methodology that's going to be used here. And I'm not even sure if we're concrete about what that methodology is going to be. But we got news from the government last week that, uh, that well, they're, they're talking about February 28th is the day these guys are supposed to make their submission to the Transportation Ministry. Now we find out that we may never find out what that recommendation is going to be uh, because it's it's not going to be public document. They might release part of it, might release some of it, they might not, and they might just ignore everything that's being recommended, which which tells me that, you know, that first of all, there's no transparency here, and, and it that seems to, I think, add substance to what a lot of people are saying is they've already decided what they want to do. This is just f- transparency. 
This is just this is just window dressing, really, to try to assuage some of the concerns that have been raised about the way the government handled this. Yeah, and my comments do not speak to the people who are on that panel. No, no, I, I totally agree. I, I think yeah. yeah, I think they're being used by the government, and I, that that makes me yeah. even more angry. Yeah, they 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 have been called to serve, and they are serving their community, and I commend them. Um, there has been a lack of transparency in this from the get-go. When the Minister Mulroney rolled into town just prior to Christmas and cancelled a technical briefing, there has been no um, transparency in terms of the numbers that were used to calculate the bogus costs that the government used as an excuse to cancel this project. There has been no transparency um, on uh, what what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, and as you know, their their meetings are not are not public. So, um, my argument has always been: we have had a transparent process, and that has come in twofold. Ten years of discussing about this publicly with um, overwhelming public engagement and uh, multiple elections, and that last election was this past uh, October. 2018, where Fred Eisenberger ran on a pro-LRT platform, um, and he won overwhelmingly. So there's your mandate, there's your transparency, um, and that's what elections are for. The other element to this, too, and, and look, I, I, I know people are always, I'm getting emails just as you and I are talking about pro and anti-LRT, their talking points. Uh, we're past that. Uh, you know, the council has made a decision, the province has made a decision, but what bothers me, whether you're pro or anti-LRT, we should all be concerned about the way that this provincial government is handling this and, and, the, and the, the hand that they're dealing to Hamilton right now. You've made some very strong points about what uh, an economic driver uh, and environmental uh, advantageous group uh, LRT would be. The province seems to agree with you when it comes to KW and to Ottawa and to, and to, to Mississauga. They just don't seem to agree with you as, as far as Hamilton's concerned. But we, as a, you as an elected body, and we as taxpayers are being shut out of a system that's going to have an impact on our community. All Hamilton is doing with LRT is following the provincial rules. So if you read the plan for the Golden Horseshoe, um, it sets out all the objectives of how it wants communities and cities um, to evolve and where it wants us to put our resources. Multimodal transportation, compact development. Um, There is about 15 items. We're LRT meets all of those objectives. We're following the provincial rules. And, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, if you don't have a plan and if you don't have parameters and if you don't have rules, um, then it really undermines public um, uh, trust and transparency. And that's critically important. Maureen, we'll see how this uh, develops, and obviously we're waiting uh, with great anticipation to see what's going to happen at the end of the month. But uh, good luck with the presentation, and thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Maureen Wilson. Okay, Maureen Wilson, the counselor for Ward 1. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.